Well, hello and welcome. Welcome to Diverse Conversations with Ashka Patel. And today it's an absolute honor to have our guest, Dr. Bruce Berger, uh, joining us for the conversation on motivational interviewing. It is one of the most important tools a pharmacy or a healthcare provider, for that matter, um, can have in their toolkit. Um, and I'm just very, very excited to unpack this with him uh, because he has been a leader when it comes to implementing motivational interviewing and how it can help achieve patient outcomes, in particular treatment adherence. Um, you know, Bruce has is a president of uh, Berger Consulting LLC and professor emeritus at Auburn University. He has developed a course called Commit, uh, which is comprehensive motivational interviewing uh, training for healthcare providers and AUMITI, which is Auburn University Motivational Interviewing Training Institute. He has taught motivational interviewing in healthcare and methods for improving treatment adherence for over 30 years. Bruce received his bachelor's in pharmacy from the Ohio State University. And after practicing as a, in pharmacy for two years, he returned um, back to Ohio State um, where he received his master's and PhD in social and behavior pharmacy. His research interests include health behavior change and improving treatment adherence. Um, he has written three books, uh, written or presented over 900 papers, 88 of which are peer reviewed um, and seminars um, on these topics. He has attracted over three and a half million in funding to support his research. He has been a consultant and a trainer for numerous national and multinational organizations and businesses um, where he teaches motivational interviewing um, to healthcare providers and to any other uh, professionals. Bruce is the 2009 recipient of the American Association of the Colleges of Pharmacies, Robert Chalmers Distinguished Pharmacy Educator Award, one of the association's third highest, three highest honors in pharmacy education. He is also the author of the book, Motivational Interviewing for Healthcare Professionals, A Sensible Approach, um, with August 2020, where his second edition had come out. And also, uh, he has developed an eight-hour accredited motivational interviewing e-learning program for healthcare professionals in 2015, along with his colleague, William A. Willow. Uh, today, Bruce, I'm very excited to welcome you to this conversation, as I'm certain that the expertise and the experience that you bring in not only just teaching, but also preparing healthcare providers to truly set up our uh, patients for successes, it's going to be critical um, as we unpack this topic and really, um, you know, kind of learn about why it's so important and sometimes a rather not so um, thought, well thought topic in pharmacy school, especially when we talk about it here in Canada. And, and I'm just really looking forward to hearing your perspectives on it. Yeah, great to be here. Thank, Thank you, you for asking me. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I guess we'll start off with a very simple question, but I'm, I'm sure it's a question that carries a lot with it. Uh, you know, what is motivational interviewing? And, uh, you know, let's start off with that and, and, and see how we can uh, go forward with it. Well, in the simplest kind of explanation, it's, it's, it's not only a set of skills, but it's a way of being with patients. It's a, it's a patient-centered approach, uh, and, it, and it was developed for, for patients who are ambivalent or resistant to changing their behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it originally started, was developed by a clinical psychologist named William Miller, and focused on substance abuse. And, you know, I, I, when I read, it, it is still the most successful intervention in substance abuse today, mm -hmm. uh, lowest rate of relapse. 
And, you know, when I first discovered it, gosh, probably 35 years ago, I started thinking, wow, if he could do this with people who are addicted to substances, can't we bring this to healthcare for high blood pressure, diabetes, and chronic disease management? And so, uh, again, it's a set of skills and a way of being with patients. And we use those skills and a way of being to explore and uncover the patient's motivation or lack of it. It's, right. it's really a misnomer in that we are not doing motivational interviewing to motivate patients. We're doing motivational interviewing to understand and explore the patient's motivation. Uh, you know, what's keeping them from doing something? What would make it more likely that they would take their medicine, lose weight, quit smoking, uh, whatever the behavior is? And it's, and it's done in a non-confrontational way. Fantastic. Um, thank you for sharing that. And, and again, like, you know, I think you've kind of alluded to this already, but, you know, from the research and the extensive involvement that you've had with motivational interviewing and like, you know, the benefits, what are the benefits of MI, um, you know, when we are uh, providing, I guess, patient consultations using motivational in, um, interviewing, you know, what are some of the benefits for both the healthcare provider as well as the patient? Well, I, you know, I would say that, you know, uh, an important benefit up front uh, is that motivational interviewing is evidence-based. It's well-researched. And so, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, we should do this or we should talk this way, but there's no evidence behind it. Mm. Tons of research on motivational interviewing. I know we'll talk a little bit more about that later because yes. we've done some of it. But um, one of the most important things is that motivational interviewing doesn't cause, cause face loss. Right. Uh, when I have the opportunity to do a lot of work consulting for companies that are doing MTM, medication therapy management. And when I listen to the calls, around 80% of the conversations have face loss. Face loss occurs when we're saying things to patients like, no, that's not how you're supposed to take it. Or we've been over this before. Or did your doctor tell you? You know, so some kind of correction or scolding in right. a sense. And what we've learned is that when people lose face, when patients lose face, they stop listening right. or, or they discount the information that's being given to them. So mm -hmm. motivational interviewing doesn't cause face loss. It. Uh, it can be used effectively in time-limited environments, which okay. is what healthcare professionals face all the time yes and fundamentally it honors and respects the relationship and the patient's right to choose hmm. um I, I like to use this analogy we get trained in healthcare thinking we're driving the bus and the patient's a passenger yes the opposite's true we don't drive the bus the patient has always driven the bus the patient ultimately decides we tell a patient everything there is to know Mm -hmm. about a medication and why it's important, but ultimately the patient decides. Right. What we're trying to do is uncover up front, you know, how, how motivated is the patient to do this, hmm. what might get in the way, or downstream, what's caused them to stop, right? right? Uh, but ultimately, we're a passenger trying to influence the direction of the bus right. that the patient is driving not us. 
That is very, very true. And, and again, I think that kind of goes back to the whole theory where we want to keep the patient as the leader or the driver of their healthcare, right? And, and we are there to support their healthcare needs. What it means to be patient-centered. It's not about me. It's about them. Exactly. It's, and, and the fact is, you know, and I don't mean this in any kind of negative way, it is their illness. Mm -hmm. So they have to decide if they want to treat it. Right. Now, we can have huge influence on that, both positively and negatively. Motivational interviewing's influence, uh, according to all the research, is very positive. Mm. That's fantastic. And I do want to unpack the evidence uh, around motivational interviewing, uh, you know, very shortly. Uh, but before that, you had touched on this topic of, you know, the time that it takes to come, um, you know, it's not very time consuming. Um, and as you have rightly pointed out, you know, time is of essence when it comes to providing healthcare. Uh, what are some of the barriers to motivational interviewing? And, you know, how much time does it take to complete an effective motivational interviewing? Well, I, I would say that uh, one of the biggest barriers, honestly, is insufficient training. Right. Uh, you know, I get asked all the time, will you do one to two hours of training in motivational interviewing? And I always respond that one to two hours is not training. It's an introduction. And, you know, Miller's research and my research shows that you need a minimum of eight hours of training and a lot of practice to get good at it. Now, the reason that's so important to your time question is that if you do not have the appropriate training, you can spend a heck of a lot longer with a patient than you need to. Exactly. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, how much time it takes is dependent upon how complex the issue is. Also, you know, uh, if you have a, uh, we had a patient who, for example, was prescribed uh uh, uh, an anticoagulant because they had uh, the other kind of MI, <laughs> you know, myocardial infarction. And, and this patient said to us, uh, they put a bottle, a large bottle of aspirin on the counter. Right. And when we asked, is it for you? Their answer was, listen, I've already had the lecture. Aspirin's the only thing that gives me relief from my back pain. So yes, I'm going to take it. And I've, I've heard what the doctor said, but I'm still going to take it. And no, I'm not going back to the doctor for blood, for blood work. Now, that's not a two-minute conversation, mm -mm. you know. That's but on the mean. other hand, using MI, we can get that down to under a five-minute conversation, even with something with that complexity. Hmm. Because we have to first, you know, the first things most of us say in situations like that is, well, that's not a good idea in one form or another. We looked at the guy and we said, you know, aspirin's been the only thing that's been giving you relief from your back pain, and you don't want anybody taking your pain relief away. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really important to you. And then, then we said, I don't want to take your pain relief away either. Right. Um, then we told him what our concerns were, mm -hmm. right? So by, by first telling him that we get what his issue is, he was more willing to listen. Hmm. And, and that's part of what MI does. The other thing I'll tell you is that Miller in his research showed that five minutes of motivational interviewing done by an expert, that's the key, an expert is more effective than 30 minutes of traditional counseling in healthcare. Wow. Which by the way, is not counseling. It's, it's education. 
Counseling is an exchange of information. What we call counseling in healthcare is really us telling the patient something. What to do. That's right. Or education. Right. And let me give, uh, give you a really quick example. I was working, and I, and I have permission to, to, to use this example. I was working with a number of Kroger pharmacists, Kroger being a large food chain here. Uh, and they have pharmacies. And they said to me, we've got a patient. He, he has a, he, he's got a, a medication for his uh, blood pressure. Supposed to take it every day. Uh, all of his data shows that he takes it on average four days a week, right? They call him up. Hey, Mr. Jones, we notice you're taking your blood pressure medicine four days a week. You really need to take it every day if you want to get your blood pressure down. Mm -hmm. He always says, yeah, I know. this is what they're telling me. He mm -hmm. always says, yeah, I know I need to do better. And guess what happens next time they talk to him? He's back to what he was doing before. <laughs> That's right. And I said to the pharmacist that I was uh, working with, when you tell him you need to take it seven days a week, what do you learn? Right. And they said, huh, nothing. And I said, that's correct. I said, what would happen if instead of saying you need to take it seven days a week, you said, hey, Mr. Jones, we notice you're taking your blood pressure medicine about four days a week. What's made it important for you to take it on those four days? Will we learn something? And the right. answer is sure. We'll learn something about how important does he think this medicine is in treating his blood pressure. We can also ask him, then we can use that positive conversation because now notice we've noticed what he's doing, what right. he is doing. Yes. You know, we always talk about non-adherence, but non-adherence means they're also, unless they're not taking it at all, they're also adherent. Exactly. <laughs> so let's focus on the adherence and yeah. find out why they're being adherent on those four days, that'll help open up the other three days. So we'll learn something. He may say, hey, I take it four days a week, I feel fine. So I decided I really didn't need more than four days a week. So now we can say, okay, because you were feeling okay, you thought four days a week might be enough. He says, right, and we say, you know, that makes sense. Would you mind if I share a few thoughts with you and you tell me what you think? Right. Then we can do the education about why seven days is needed, even though they feel okay. <laughs> and that's a that's a great point you raised there, because it, it's really about perspective, as you as you really mentioned, right? Because I think at, at we as healthcare providers, we think, oh, you know, that it's the three days that the patient is not taking medications, but we fail to acknowledge the four days that the patient is actually taking the medication. And, it, and it's really largely our training is, yes. uh, again, we call it non-adherence, you know, Yes. Uh, but it's also partial adherence. Uh, it is, yeah. You know, a, a woman that had diabetes once looked at me and said, I'll take the medicine, but don't expect me to do anything else. Well, when I listen, and we hear this all the time, and when I listen to calls, the very first thing the pharmacist says in some respect or another is, well, that's not enough. Right. Well, they may be right, but that's face loss. Yes. Right? Yes. And we're losing the patient. Rather than, you know, uh, I'm really glad to hear that you're, that you're committed to taking the medicine every day. Mm -hmm. What's made that important to you? Exactly. Now we can affix her motivation to the other behaviors, exactly. but it's coming from her and we're acknowledging what she's doing. Mm -hmm. uh, this is actually called 
positive psychology. It was developed by a guy named Seligman and it's very powerful. It's one of the reasons MI works because we're actually focusing on what patients are doing, not just yeah. what they're not doing. Right. And that's, that's, that's actually great. And you had mentioned about, you know, it being a non-judgmental conversation, a conversation that kind of speaks to the patient's motivations. And, you know, now that I reflect back, even the term non-adherence in itself is a judgment that we are passing because, sure. you know, what are we expecting the patient to be adherent to our instructions? Like it, and you know, that really, again, then kind of goes to show like, you know, what patriarchic type of a model that we have created that we need to start looking back and, you know, yeah, we used, call, we used to even call it non-compliance. Yes. That was worse because they're not dogs and children. You know, <laughs> they're, they're human beings who have a right to make decisions. Exactly. Sometimes those decisions can get them in trouble, uh, but we shouldn't be judgmental about it. We should be, you know, again, exploring what mm -hmm. they're doing. And, and I really want to emphasize, again, we're not trying to motivate them or persuade them. We're really trying to explore what they're doing, provide new insight mm -hmm. uh, so that they may change their mind. Right. You know, for, for example, the person who says, I don't understand why I need this medicine, I feel fine. And they mm -hmm. have high blood pressure or diabetes, right? Right. Well, in our sense-making approach that we developed, we have, we have found that a sense leads to a conclusion, which leads to a decision about behavior. This patient's sense is, I feel fine. Right. What's their conclusion? I am fine. Fine. What's yeah. their decision about behavior? I don't need to do anything. Exactly. And, and the fact is human beings use what are called schema to make mm -hmm. sense of things. One schema that's common in healthcare is, if I feel fine, yes, I am I'm fine. fine. Well, guess what? Most of the time that's true. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Except for asymptomatic chronic illness. Yes. So rather than immediately saying to this patient, just because you feel fine doesn't mean you are. You could have high blood pressure and not feel it. Mm -hmm. And you hear the you hear the comma stupid at the end of that sentence and the face loss. Right. Yes. And I would say so because you're feeling OK, you're really wondering, why do you need to take this medicine? Mm -hmm. And in fact, you're wondering is a skill we developed. In, right. in our book and in our e-learning wow. that is used whenever the patient is saying, I don't get it. Hmm. And that's what the, notice what it does. Also, it turns that patient's quest, statement into a question, question. Yes, that we now can answer. Got it. And we can now tell them how they can feel fine mm -hmm. and still be at risk. And that's the piece that's missing right. from their motivation. That is but they don't understand how they can be at risk if they feel okay. Exactly. exactly. Notice we, now, when we were talking about time, I can't tell you how many times I've listened to healthcare professionals, pharmacists, go into a long explanation with this patient about the etiology and progression of high blood, blood, mm -hmm. blood pressure. That's not this patient's issue. <laughs> Their issue is they don't understand how they can feel okay and be at risk. Right. That's what must be addressed. That right. can be done in two minutes if you know what you're doing. Exactly. And I think it, it really starts with um, allowing the patient to be the decision maker and us being the presenter of information and being able to then have an engaging dialogue where both parties are equally contributing. Right. And at the end dialogue. of that dialogue, we always end up saying, once we've provided new information, 
not, we don't say, therefore you need to take medicine. Yes. We say instead, where does this leave you now mm. in regard to taking the medicine? Because I want to know, did this new information have an impact? For and sure. In what way? Exactly, exactly. And, and, and I think it's a very critical component because oftentimes we present so much information to patients that, you know, they're, we don't even gauge their capacity to absorb that information before, uh, you know, pro providing all that information to them. And then we expect them to kind of just follow it. But how are they going to follow it if they don't understand the information that we yeah, provide? And, and when, we, when we open the door and say, where does that leave you now? Yes. Uh, they may have a, you know, they, they may have a perplexed look on their face, mm -hmm. or we might even hear the nonverbals over the phone. And they may say, well, and, and then we could say, sound like you're having some doubts. Right. Tell me more about that. Mm -hmm. Right. And we want to know, because if we don't uncover that, they're going to go back, they're going to go back home and not take the medicine. Exactly, exactly. And you, um, and I think as healthcare providers, we've always been kind of driven or, um, you know, motivated by evidence supporting our practices. Um, and you had alluded to this a little earlier as well, but what evidence exists to really demonstrate the importance of motivational interviewing, especially in chronic disease management, like if there's any um, evidence you would like to highlight? Well, there's, uh, there's tons of it. And <laughs> time, time when that if you if if pharmacists go to uh, pubmed.com pubmed.com and they put in you know evidence of mi effectiveness they'll find tons of research hmm. but i'll tell you one piece we did and we actually won a national uh, research award from the american pharmacists association called the Wiederholt prize wow. for the best uh, publication in the social behavioral sciences mm -hmm. um, we got asked by biogenetic to, to if, they, if we can help them. They've got a drug Avonex for right. MS. They had a 13% dropout rate on the drug. Wow. And so we did a huge study for them and we did, and to make a long story short, mm -hmm. uh, we did, uh, we had a, it was a clinical control trial where we had a treatment group and a control group and people were randomly assigned mm -hmm. to the treatment and control group. The only difference between the two groups were we did four months where the motivational interviewing interventions in the, in the treatment group, hmm. control group got what they got before. Okay. okay. And this is through Biogen's call center, by the way. Uh, at the end of the study, the treatment group, the dropout rate dropped to 1.2%. Wow. That was a projected savings to Biogen of $93 million dollars. In addition to the fact that people who would have dropped out from taking the medication mm -hmm. stayed on their avenues. And the most important thing about this study is mm -hmm. there were groups of patients. Every patient, of course, is different. There were groups of patients that were, that were thinking of dropping out or dropping out because they had needle phobia. Right. So we, had, we could help them with that. There were other patients that said things like, um, I, I'm taking them. I take the Avonex and I've had a flare up again. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's working. They didn't understand that it was still working, but it was going to slow the progression of the illness. It wasn't a cure. Right. And so, and so again, even there, rather than saying to them, well, it's not a cure, stupid, right? <laughs> and causing face loss. Instead, we said, you've been taking the medication and you had a flare up, and that really made you wonder. Is it mm -hmm. working? And we would then say, that's a great question. 
Right. Then we could say, you know, unfortunately, as of today, we don't have any cures for MS, but this medication can slow the progression and strength mm -hmm. of those events. I fear that if you stop using it, your MS would progress much faster. Gotcha. What are your thoughts now? Right. Okay. Another group of patients, for example, uh, had a hard time tolerating the uh, side effects uh, mm. in the first several months, which go away. And yeah. we could help them with that. And, mm -hmm. and of course, there were patients that had combinations. Right. But the fact is, we were able to individually tailor the help we were able to give those patients and reduce the dropout rate in a mm. hugely statistically significant way to 1.2%. That is fantastic. I mean, um, and I and think that's been we, published. In, exactly. It was published in Jaffa. Wow, that is that is that is an incredible example. Um, and and I think and kind of just to you know take this evidence a little bit forward. Um, you know, how can pharmacists use MI in their roles? Um, you know, be it in community consulting, MTM, um, you know, whatever role that they have. I think. I, I mean, I'm starting to see like MI does have a huge role to play in terms of how we provide care to our patients and like would love to just hear your insights on that. Yeah, let me let me tell you about something that's very sad first. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> uh, there's a company called Precision Value. Okay. And one of the things they do are studies mm -hmm. uh, and polls. And uh, so they polled healthcare professionals broadly mm -hmm. and found out one of the most important critical issues for healthcare professionals is treatment adherence. Wow. And yet, uh, and even though they cited helping patients become more adherent is one of the most difficult things for them to do. Mm -hmm. Less than 50% were using evidence-based approaches, including MI, wow. to do that. So, so here we have a, a, an evidence-based approach and look at this, look at what happened with the Biogen study. And there's many other studies like that. And yet healthcare professionals are not using those approaches or mm -hmm. if they use the approaches, they don't have the proper training to use yeah. them effectively. And then they blame them on, right? right. And, and the fact of the matter is, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm working with a number of MTM companies here in the, in the States. Mm -hmm. And one in particular, uh, Aspen RX Health, uh, through my consulting, has now made me one of their health coaches. Wow. Uh, they are so convinced that it's made a difference in the calls that they make to their patients mm -hmm. uh, that they've broadened my role. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I do a lot of work with their pharmacists. And again, these are these are 15 minute, 20 minute calls. Uh, but and honestly, that's probably more time than most retail right. pharmacists have. Yes. But on the other hand, uh, the results uh, are, are pretty impressive. The, the pharmacists will tell you they feel so much better about themselves right. at the end of the call because they feel like they've made a difference. All right. Exactly. Even, exactly. even in approaching patients about uh, flu shots before COVID, they would ask a patient if you had a flu shot and the patient would say, no, I'm not. And I'm not going to mm -hmm. get one because it gave me the flu last year. Right. And the first thing they would say is it can't give you the flu. And now the now we're in an argument. Rather than rather than 
uh, you, you got the flu shot last year and then you felt bad, mm -hmm. felt like you had the flu. So you're thinking, why in the world would I want to do this again? Right. Now we're saying to the patient, we get it. Got it. Then okay. we can help them understand how, how you can feel bad for a day. Right. But it doesn't give you the flu. But exactly. you've got to first acknowledge and respect what they're saying. Same thing with COVID. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say to a patient, uh, I don't want to take that drug. That they, they can put a computer chip in there and they can mm -hmm. monitor you. And, and the response immediately is, that can't happen. Exactly. Rather than, that, rather than when you heard about that, you thought to yourself, I don't want to get a vaccine where somebody can invade my privacy. Mm -hmm. So we've got to acknowledge and respect what the patient has to say if we're going to have an impact. For Even sure. if we don't agree with it. Uh, I agree. I agree. And I think, again, this kind of takes back to the crux of the matter is we need to listen to our patients and not necessarily be the ones kind of teaching them with the finger pointing, saying you do this or you whatever you're saying is wrong, because that's really where the face well, value. And the loss you know, comes it, in. it is called health care. Yes. It shouldn't be an oxymoron. Yes. In other words, part of being caring means to be even if a patient says, I don't want to take that COVID vaccine. It can give you COVID, mm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, even though we know that's not true. Yes. You have to be able to respect and hear mm -hmm. the concern of the patient and say, you don't want to take something that could give you the very thing you're trying to prevent. Exactly. And the, and, and the patient, am I agreeing with them? No. I'm saying, I get why you don't want to do it. Right. Then we can say, would you mind if I just shared some thoughts with the idea that this is really your decision? Mm -hmm. They can hear that. Yes. Got it. And that makes a huge difference, right? Because then the patient, I think right now the, the whole difference of opinion and I mean, you're already seeing the polarizing views around even the, the, this whole pandemic and you know, everything related to the pandemic. And I think the way you state it, it really helps the patient feel heard and which ends up then be making them more receptive to, in, to the information that we have to share with them as well, right? Yep. Uh, and yeah. I think you when can't you engage... get there, you can't get there by correcting. Exactly. Exactly. And That's I think we, I say, we... face loss is deadly. Yes, we lose them the moment we say no, or we, we try to, de uh, you know, demean them or anything like that. We, we lose them right at the get go instead of even allowing us an opportunity to present our side to them. So yeah, I always tell for I always tell healthcare professionals, if you can add the word stupid to the end of the sentence and it doesn't change your meaning, you're going down the wrong path. Right. Now, when you say to a patient, you can't feel when your blood pressure's up. Yes. Stupid. Right. right. Then you're down the wrong path. Got it. Fair enough. And uh, with that, with that said, um, any critical uh, research papers or uh, or research that you have done that really highlight or you know show that pharmacists are able to improve patient care with the use of MI? Well, uh, well, again, I don't. I do have. Well, let's put it this way: I do have pharmacies and pharmacists or organizations that have done that and shown right. effectiveness. Mm -hmm. but it's proprietary so Got i can't it. share it okay Fair enough. <laughs> uh, because it was it was done with me helping them as a consultant but okay. again it, it, uh, there are studies with pharmacists and physicians etc uh, i was working with a with a, uh, a company who's uh, well primary care physicians mm. 
they saw tremendous increases in patient satisfaction with care right. with, with, their, with their physicians that had been trained in MI. Right. Uh, they also found, believe it or not, after they got good at it, it took less time, it, it allowed them to actually take less time with the patient because they got to the patient's issues quicker. Issues first. That's true. That's true. And I think it, it really drills down to knowing what are the concerns of the patient in the truest forms, rather than us kind of guessing or, you know, projecting our own concerns onto the patient without even truly understanding their situation, right? Or, or talking about things that's really not what the patient's stuck on. Exactly. You know, <laughs> you know when, when, when the patient says, I don't know why I need this medicine, I feel fine. Mm -hmm. That's the issue that needs to be addressed, not yes. how high blood pressure evolves. Exactly, exactly. And with that said, um, you know, being, um, you know, you have practice as a pharmacist in the past, and like, you know, you teach extensively, um, you know, motivational interviewing, but also like, you know, you have a lot of work done in terms of uh, improving treatment adherence. And, you know, how can pharmacists better contribute to improve patient health outcomes, like from your perspective? Well, and, I, and I'm, I'm biased in that, you know, uh, to me, Huh. Back in back in the early 1970s, somebody named Bonnie Svarstad, who was a researcher at the University of Wisconsin mm -hmm. College of Pharmacy, she was actually uh, has her PhD in sociology. Wow! Did a huge study and found that the number one predictor of adherence and outcomes is the relationship between the patient and the healthcare provider. And here we are, 40 some years later, and we're talking about digital health. All of those things are, are extremely important tools. Yes. But it still boils down to the relationship, you know, and so we have got to be able to learn whether it's MI, you know, uh, how to explore patients motivation to manage their illness, you know, we have to learn, we have to learn how to explore, how is this patient making sense of it of their of their illness and treatment we ask questions, like, what does diabetes mean to you, right. in your own words, because that's going to uncover for me you know, where is the education needed? Mm -hmm. How do I know what to tell a patient if I don't know what they understand? We call motivational interviewing, by the way, a meeting of experts. Right. As a pharmacist, I'm an expert on drugs. Mm -hmm. The patient's an expert on how they make sense of those drugs yes. and the illness that they're treating. And so if I say to a patient, uh, tell me in your own words, what does diabetes mean to me, mean to you? And the patient says, well, you know, the doctor says I have sugar, but I feel okay. So I don't see any point in doing anything. Right. The patient's telling me something about how they're making sense. It's really critical to me now knowing how to respond to them. Yes. Versus the patient who says, Oh my gosh, you know, if my doctor said if my blood sugar remains elevated, I could have kidney problems, go mm -hmm. blind. I don't want that to happen. Those are two very different patients. Right. And how I respond to them, you know, and so I need to find out, you know, what would make it more important to treat the, you know, to treat the diabetes, what gets in the way. And we've got to stop these paternalistic and persuasive approaches. We have 40 years of evidence that they don't work. <laughs> I mean, I'll leave you with this. Think about this. 40 years ago, the rate of adherence in year two of the chronic illness was less than 50%. Wow. The rate, okay, 40 years ago. 40 years ago. 
Back then, we said the reason was that we had four times a day and three times a day drug therapy. It was harder to take. Mm-hmm. Now we have once a day, once a week, once a month, once every six month drug yes. therapy. Guess what the rate of adherence is now? Still the same or lesser? Absolutely the same. <laughs> you have to ask yourself, yes. why? Why? Yeah. You know, and, and my answer is the way we talk with patients has not changed fundamentally mm-hmm. in 40 years. Yes, that's true. That's and true. And when we do change and use things like motivational interviewing, the rates of adherence do go up. For sure, for sure. And this, the, you have brought such an interesting statistic because you know it, it really goes to show how much behavior and um, personal beliefs have a role to play you know when we're dealing with um, you know patients um, attitudes towards taking medications um, do you uh, do you want like are there any other tools or resources um, that you foresee pharmacists requiring um, that can help them better support patient outcomes I mean like I think I'm convinced about the importance of motivational interviewing. Like um, you have convinced me, that's for sure. Um, I think every pharmacist should be very well versed with motivational interviewing and should be using this as part of their day-to-day interactions with patients. Um, any other resources which are um, you know, effective to the level of motivational interviewing that? Sh- well, you know, what's interesting is that all the research that's being done on a, a lot of interventions. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you know, uh, are showing, you know, five, five to ten percent increases. You know, if if they're done consistently. But what I what I see is, uh, you know, a dynamic. It's not either this or this. It's not either digital health or motivational interviewing. Right. These are tools. You know, and when I see the, you know, and this probably leads to you know, one of your next questions about the future, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about digital health, digital health conferences are coming up everywhere. And it's absolutely vital. Um, The devices that patients now can use uh, in terms of, you know, uh, little watches that can uh, track their sleep, can track their walking and, you know, so many different things. Those are all things patients are going to be getting more and more feedback. about their own health but ultimately we're still going to find that patients are going to be non-adherent or partially adherent right and we still ultimately have to learn how to talk to them in a way that doesn't scold that doesn't threaten Mm -hmm. uh, etc so we're going to be using digital health to uncover it Uh, there's a there's a digital health product right now that for example uses a chip that Mm -hmm. can tell with an asthma inhaler, uh, whether the how often the inhaler was used and whether it was used properly so that the patient got a full dose. All right, so now the information goes back to the pharmacist or the physician and says, patient's not either using the inhaler correctly or not using it often enough. Right. Now we gotta talk to them about this. Yes. Are we still gonna scold them? Nope. Or are we gonna explore what's going on in a caring and loving way? 
Exactly, no. exactly. And and you've raised such a great point. It is like, you know, yes, the whole focus is on digital health, and that's because it's that untapped territory, which we're just emerging into. But at the same time, I think, um, as you said, 40 years ago, it was a relationship that mattered the most. And today, it's the same thing. And 40 years from now, it's going to be the same thing. It, it's going to be that human interaction and human well, connection. What I find troubling is, you know, I was part of the, you know, the academy for 40 years of my life, right? right? And, and if academia is not about evidence-based and research, what is, right? Exactly. And yet, here we are 40 years later, still trying to figure out what to do. And we have evidence-based approaches mm-hmm. that work, yet the work of you know precision value study shows that less than 50% of healthcare professionals are using these evidence-based tools to have an impact. That's true. That's true. And then, then, and I'm going to scold the academy a little bit, <laughs> MI is now part, I don't know what it is in Canada, it's part, it is part of uh, accreditation standards in the U.S. Okay. But very few schools train eight hours of motivational interviewing training And yet the evidence shows minimum of eight hours to be effective, right? So they do a couple hours and often the people teaching it are a new clinical pharmacist and they've been stuck with the course. (laughs) It's not going to work. It's not. And by the way, just just so you know, we're giving, we're giving our eight hour MI uh, uh, e-learning course to AACP to, to allow the schools to use it for student use only Wow! Uh, on a yearly basis. Uh, oh, pharmacists cool. who want CE will still need to go to our Purdue website. And right. by the way, we're accredited for, for Canadian pharmacists also. So that's fantastic. That's and and so, I'm, I'll be sure to link that course um, in our description box below, just so that if anyone who's listening is interested in checking it out, please do check it out. Um, you know, I'm in the process of, um, you know, taking that course right now. And if anything, I can tell you is uh, motivational interviewing is important. It's a skill that we need to learn to better support our patients moving forward because, and and this is again, a question I also want to explore with you a little bit further, but I, you know, I, I really do think that pharmacists will have a very huge role in patient education and, and just um, patient monitoring uh, moving forward. And, and like, I think motivational interviewing would be a critical tool to have for us to have any success, you know, with our patients utilizing technology, medications, be it in any way, shape, or form that they're prescribed to make sure that they're, you know, taking it the way they should be to get the outcomes that they want to achieve out of those. Well, and and the way our health system is moving in the U.S. and I, I can't speak for Canada, mm-hmm. but the way we're moving in the U.S. is we're, we're we have now what are called star ratings, mm-hmm. where, where patients are rating the care they've been given. Right. Where we're moving is two things. If your star ratings are too low, your compensation is not going to be equal, not going to be where you want it. Right. And if you do not show positive outcomes, mm-hmm. your compensation is going to be lower. Wow. So, and not only that, we don't need pharmacists to dispense drugs. Exactly. You know, you know we, we have machines that can now dispense far more accurately Yes. And, and so, you know, I, I see a day coming when the dispensing is done in an off facility mm-hmm. and 
you know, sent to, sent to patients and the pharmacists are going to be doing this, you, you know, exactly. You and I talking digitally yeah. uh, and we're still going to have to know how to use motivational interviewing with this medium. Exactly. And if exactly. pharmacists will be able to work at home like they're doing in the U.S. with MTM right now, mm-hmm. uh, which is huge exactly. uh, to be able to talk to patients uh, and have an impact. No, that you, you, you're so right on that. And, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, we don't have the star ratings fully implemented just yet. We do have a private provider, um, an insurance provider who's testing it out right now with pharmacies and pharmacists, but we're not there yet where, um, you know, it's fully integrated into a profession. However, that said, you know, what happens south of the border does influence our profession in a couple few years. So I I would not be surprised to see this wave of, um, you know, changed expectations coming to pharmacists and the profession of pharmacy. And, you know, I think we need to be forewarned so that we can prepare for that future. With that said, um, you know, any advice for pharmacy professionals as we're preparing for the future? Just really understand that if you're clinging to, to dispensing, Look, I understand that right now where we are is that too much of what we get compensated for has to do with the dispensing of a product. Yes. That's not our future. Mm-hmm. It will not be our future. We, we will know that we've gotten to where we want to get to when we don't dispense a drug and get paid. Yes. In other words, where we see this drug is inappropriate for this patient. And we don't dispense it and get compensated. Exactly. Wow. Um, and so that's the direct, that's where we have to be moving toward. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, I can't stop people from dispensing right now because that's still where most of the compensation is coming from, yeah. but it's not our future. We, we, uh, the fact that MTM is growing so rapidly in this country and the fact that pharmacists are being paid by health plans Yes. To call seniors, you know, uh, <laughs> and talk to us about our medication, that's the future. Yes, I you agree. Know. I agree for sure. And, and and again, I think we share a similar vision when it comes to that, because I really do see the role of the pharmacist stepping away from the dispensary and more so connecting with the patients uh, one-on-one and, um, you know, we are seeing an emergence in digital therapeutics where, you know, the, there's like games and softwares that are designed to help, um, you yeah. know, improve patient behaviors and outcomes. Again, these systems or technologies are only as good as the support that the patient gets. And I think pharmacists will play a critical role because we are known as a medication experts. We will be then the, the natural by default, the, the healthcare providers will be stepping in to educate our patients because if, if we don't, then somebody else will. Well, um, and I've, I've, I've worked with several companies now also that are developing mm-hmm. digital assistance. Yes. Okay. And uh, so the digital assistant can actually, you know, the computer and these computer voices are getting really good yes. where they can say they can actually, you know, uh, send an email message or call up the patient, however the patient wants it mm-hmm. and say, Mr. Jones, it's time to take your medication or, or Mr. Jones, I noticed from your Fitbit that you haven't done your walk today. Are you still planning to do it? Now, those are things a digital assistant can do. Yeah. What these companies know now, because I've done workshops with them, we are nowhere near the level of complexity of being able to do MI with yes. a digital assistant, uh, yes. because these are complex human interactions. Mm-hmm. So 
So at the risk of a really bad pun, pharmacists have got to make themselves indispensable mm -hmm. by building effective relationships with the patient. Yes. It's not going to be by the drugs we dispense. It's going to be by the relationships that we build with the patient. So, so true. And what a great note, um, you know, to kind of end our talk. Um, but I do want to make sure and I reemphasize this that, you know, uh, we will be linking the course that you've created because it is eight hours of motivational interviewing training for healthcare providers. It's a dedicated course created for healthcare providers. And the good thing is it's accredited for US and Canadian, um, you know, pharmacy um, and healthcare provide, uh, providers. So, and you know, technicians. I'm sorry. And pharmacy technicians. And pharmacy technicians. There you go. So, um, you know, I think we should all be preparing for the future, which, you know, as Bruce mentioned, um, it is evolving. And if we need to make ourselves indispensable, we need to build on those relationships. And I cannot think of a better tool than motivational interviewing to really support those conversations in a productive way. Right. What, I, what, I, what I'll also do, Ashka, after we're mm -hmm. done is uh, sure. there are some additional resources like for pharmacists who wish to pursue being consultants. Mm -hmm. uh, American Society of Consultant Pharmacists does yes. that. I'm going to send you the names. Uh, uh, well, one person, I don't know if you've ever heard of Blair Tielemeyer. Uh, Blair is somebody that has helped pharmacists become independent consultants and make money at it. Wow. Uh, there's an organization called uh, Metapreneurs uh, that does the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll send you the links to their sites and you can share them with your pharmacist. I definitely will be doing that for sure because um, any information we can get, especially like, you know, MTM is still not a fully tapped in market here in Canada. Um, so I think we're all kind of just learning the ropes when it comes to, you know, how do we integrate and become MTM consultants? So the resources you highlighted would really be of benefit to everyone who, who you know, gets access to this podcast. Thank you so much, Bruce, uh, for sharing all that information with us. Um, I will definitely be sorted. So make sure to check out um, Bruce's book. Uh, it's available on Amazon and um, American Pharmacists Association, as well as the course that he has designed, um, which is available at Purdue's uh, e-learning website, which will be linked below in the description box. So please feel free to check that out. And again, reach out to Bruce. Um, he's available on LinkedIn. So anytime you have a uh, question. Please. Um, you know, he, he, he has um, reconnected over LinkedIn and here we are having this conversation and, um, you know, he has been a great support um, in teaching me the ropes of motivational interviewing and, um, you know, what came up as an interest in learning about the theory behind it. And now I'm actually pursuing this topic. It, it really is, um, you know, for me to have a mentor in Bruce has been great. And Bruce, thank you so much for sharing all that information with our audience today. I'm so, so grateful. Yeah, my pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, stay tuned for our next episode coming up very soon. Till then, bye-bye.